Mark chapter 13, we're looking at verses 32 to 37. And last Sunday, we began looking at this passage in Mark 13. And uh, as we continue our series on waking up spiritually, we're going to look at it again this morning. We saw last Sunday that this passage is about unexpected arrivals. In this case, it's Jesus who's arriving unexpectedly, as Matthew puts it in his version of these verses, at an hour when you do not expect him. Matthew 24, 44. And in this passage, Jesus is urging us not to find ourselves in a situation of not being ready when he comes. We, we need Jesus' warning here to be ready. And, and Jesus gives us three reasons why that we saw in the passage last week. First, because his coming will be unexpected. We don't know. In fact, nobody knows exactly when he's coming. That's in verse 32. And because Jesus has been slow in coming, it's easy to get drowsy and to be complacent and to think, well, he's probably not coming in anytime soon. It's probably not anything I need to think about. But Jesus warns, don't be unprepared. Don't get caught off guard. I could come when you don't expect it. Second, also, we need to hear Jesus' warning here because it matters what we're doing and how he finds us when, we come, when he comes. He's given us a charge, he's given us a responsibility, and he's expecting to find us faithfully carrying it out when he comes. Verse 36. And then third, we need to hear Jesus' warning here because Jesus knows, Jesus realizes that we have this innate tendency to fall asleep spiritually, to get drowsy, to doze off, and therefore to not be alert and to not be ready. Last Sunday, I confessed to you how spiritually drowsy I was feeling at times over this past year. And, and I shared what I suspect some of the sedatives are that had been making me drowsy. And I mentioned five things. First, I mentioned schedules, being so busy with meetings and appointments and errands and kids' activities and rushing around all the time, functioning on adrenaline. And I mentioned that going at this pace may keep us awake physically, but it actually puts us to sleep spiritually. I, I mentioned a diagram that, that Bill Hybels once drew, which I found helpful. It shows that, that speed is inversely proportional to soul. The more our speed goes up, the more soul goes down. The, the faster we're going, the harder it is to maintain a good spiritual life. We become too busy to pray. We're going too fast to notice or to hear those little nudgings that the Holy Spirit is giving us. We, we hardly take time to be quiet and to notice the grandeur of God all around us, which is trying to speak to us about God's awesomeness. And so we lose perspective, and so spiritually it's easy to nod off to sleep. Second, I mentioned screens. That when we're so exhausted at the end of the day, it's so easy to just flop down with our phone or in front of the TV instead of doing something nourishing for our souls. And and so life can become a a constant distraction of of social media or Netflix or whatever. And and it's amazing how the minutes and the hours quickly slip by when we're plugged into the screen. And and we're... We're filling all of our free moments with screens, which means we have less time to focus on God, to pay attention to God or to the people around us, and to pay attention to how we're doing spiritually. Then this third spiritual sedative I've noticed in my own life is affluence. The the bubble that we live in here in Westchester. Our needs are taken care of. Many of our wants, too, we're fairly secure. And and most people around us seem that way, too. And, And to be honest... 
maybe we don't want God to rock this boat. We like being comfortable, but the reality when we're affluent is we don't get much practice trusting God. And we don't get much chance to do what Jesus told us to do and what the Bible repeatedly tells us to do, um, which is a big part of what it means to live out our faith, which is to be among the poor, to, to share what we have with those in need, to, to let um, them stretch us, to grow our generosity muscles, to grow our faith muscles. And then I mentioned a fourth sedative, politics. And it seems like these days the noise of politics is drowning out every other noise. And, and even trying to drown out the message of the scriptures. And so if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the passion and the narratives and the ideals of, of our favorite political flavor rather than those of Jesus. And, and because there's often a thin coat of God and country and good moral values and faith over certain political perspectives, if we're not careful, we don't even realize that it's not really Jesus that we're tuned into. And then fifthly, I mentioned a last sedative in my experience, which is doubt and disappointment. When, when God has disappointed us. Maybe there was something you really wanted and, and, and you were sure God was going to make it happen and it didn't happen. Or maybe something really bad had happened and God didn't stop it and, and, and you felt hurt and, and you felt disappointed and you felt betrayed. And maybe you didn't want to talk to God for a while after that. In, in your heart, you kept him at arm's length. Maybe it's not disappointment with God. Maybe it's all the doubt and the disbelief around us. Uh, everyone around us living like God doesn't matter. All the voices saying that Jesus is irrelevant. Believing that God stuff, that's just all wishful thinking. And even though you don't believe that's true, that the constant messages, the fact that everyone else functions that way, maybe it wears on you after a while, like it wears on me. And, and so sometimes we can start questioning, we can start doubting rather than being full of faith and expectation about what God can do. And so God starts to feel far off or sort of irrelevant and pretty soon we're getting drowsy, spiritually speaking. So that's review. Last Sunday we looked at all these different sedatives, right? And for some of you there were others besides the, one that, that I, the ones that I mentioned which have been true for me. But these are all things which, which make us spiritually drowsy rather than alert. And, and in today's passage, Jesus warns us, come on, stay awake. Because it matters that you're awake. It matters that you're ready. It matters that you're prepared for when I come. In fact, five times Jesus urges us in this short little passage to stay awake. Listen again. Verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. Verse 34. Keep watch. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 37, watch. So that's all review, but, but what we didn't have time last week to look at is what exactly it looks like to be awake. What's different about me, practically speaking, if I'm spiritually awake rather than spiritually nodding off? What am I doing differently if I'm awake? How am I thinking or feeling differently? And the truth is, in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell us in much detail. He, he gives a parable that, that we're to be like a doorkeeper who, who's been given a responsibility by his master. The master's gone on a trip, and the doorkeeper is supposed to be awake and alert, ready to open the door and welcome the master home when he arrives. So we know that much. But how does that task translate for us today? What is it that we're supposed to 
be alert and ready to do when Jesus comes back. And what, is, what does that look like? Let me, let me put this question in the form of a story. This is a true story from the spring of 1780. That spring, the skies for several weeks or days over New England were unusually dark. The reason has been lost to history, but people suspect today that it was perhaps a combination of smoke from forest fires in the area and, and maybe abnormally dark storm clouds as well. Whatever the causes, the skies were, were so dark that the unnerved New Englanders had difficulty functioning and getting their work done even at midday. After all, these were the days before electric light bulbs. They're using candles and lamps. And as day one today, people's sense of unsettledness and foreboding increased. You could just imagine. Many of the good Puritans saw this phenomenon as a sign of God's displeasure. The darkest day of all occurred on Mark, or May 19th, 1780, and it's become infamous as the dark day. On that day, the Connecticut General Assembly was in session, and as they began their deliberations, their chambers in the, the State House of Hartford grew so dark that it seemed that the sun had been turned off, like it was almost nighttime. Reports came in from outside that the, the streets of Hartford, too, had been reduced to inky blackness. In many homes, candles flickered in windows, birds were silent, fowls had retired to their roosts. There was an eerie, dark silence. And to many members of the legislature, devout Puritans as they were, it appeared that the promised day of judgment was at hand. Unable to see, troubled, frightened, the assembly talked about adjourning. But then the speaker, Abraham Davenport, spoke up and his famous words settled the matter and won the day. He said, I'm against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. So question, what is our duty that we should be found doing when Christ returns? Well, while the passage we're looking at this morning doesn't tell us in detail, the good news is that the context does. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you find that this passage we're looking at this morning is part of a bigger story, a bigger set of circumstances which have been going on in the life of Jesus and which Jesus has been teaching his disciples about. And it's in that context that he warns them to stay awake. So let's step back and take a look at the bigger picture and we'll be able to see what Jesus practically means when he warns us to stay awake. If you have your Bible, you can open to flip back to Mark 9 and follow along because I want you to see this. What's going on in, in Mark's gospel at this point in Jesus' life and ministry is that a pitch battle is heating up between Jesus' way of knowing and relating to God and the way of the religious leaders and the religious institutions of Jesus' day. There's a battle heating up. As you follow the story, and we'll look at some particular verses in a minute, but you can look there in Mark 9, Jesus and his disciples have, have traveled from Galilee, where much of, uh, Jesus did much of his ministry, and they've, they've traveled to Jerusalem. They're headed to Jerusalem, the religious center of the Jewish people. And along the way on this trip, it's called the way section of Mark. In Mark 9, 30 and following, for example, if you look there, Jesus has begun warning his disciples and preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to die in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus has been telling them that if they want to follow him, they have to follow his example. Rather than grasping at power and security and prestige, they need to become like children. Vulnerable, insignificant, weak. Rather than seeking to be first and preeminent, they must be willing to be the last, to be the servants of all. Look also at Mark 10, verses 32 and following. Jesus tells them that rather than seeking to save their lives, his followers, like him, must be willing to lay down their lives and to give away their lives for the sake of others. And what Jesus is teaching them here is all in contrast with the religion of the day and many other religions since, where there's a pecking order, there's a ladder to climb, and if you can get to the top, that's where there's power and influence and honor and notoriety. In today's terms, maybe you become a leader in your church, well-respected and honored, or, or if you're of the bent to become a professional religious person, maybe you're pursuing book deals with royalties or a well-followed blog and Twitter feed or speaking slots at the big conferences, maybe a spot on TV, maybe a house, becoming a household name and having a salary to match. But seeking this is not the way of Jesus. Seeking it is not. And so Jesus tells a rich young ruler who's interested in the way of eternal life in Mark 10, 21, if you want to excel with God and, and be first in my kingdom, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me. Well, then at the end of this trip to Jerusalem where Jesus is teaching his disciples and his would-be disciples about the way of this upside-down kingdom, about the downward mobility which it takes to excel in relation to God, Jesus enters Jerusalem in Mark 11 and he quickly comes into conflict with the religious hierarchy there, the big names in the religion of that day. And Jesus clears out their temple, criticizing them for making it a money-making operation. And then he begins to argue with them each day in the temple. And as they argue in Mark 11 and 12, the rift between them widens and widens until they're dead set on taking Jesus' life. Mark 12, 12. And Jesus, for his part, warns his disciples to watch out for and to dis distance themselves from these religious teachers. Mark 12, 38 to 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Don't miss that phrase, they devour widows' houses, because guess what Mark tells us next? He tells us a story about a widow, a poor widow. She puts her last two copper coins in the offering at the temple, which these religious leaders are in charge of. You catch the tragic irony here. If you read the Old Testament, these religious leaders have a responsibility to care for widows and for other poor people like them. But not only are they not doing it, but they're actually using their power to find ways to profit off people like this poor widow. They're exploiting her. They're, they're using their religion to do it. And Jesus says, do you know what I think about that? 
this poor widow who the temple should be taking care of, but instead she's giving her last two copper coins to the temple as an act of worship, of trust in, in the God who this temple is supposed to represent, but is utterly failing to represent. God values this poor widow's two cents more than the gifts of all the rich and the powerful. In my kingdom, Jesus says, in my way of looking at things, her two cents, the two cents which she gave to God out of her faith in her weakness and poverty, those are worth more than all the riches that this temple represents. And you know, that's radical. Just ask Barbara or any of our other trustees of our church. How do you run a church on the poor that the pennies, uh, the, the pennies that the poor give? Because despite the good intentions of those gifts, good intentions don't pay the bills. It takes the gifts of the rich to keep the religious machinery going. But Jesus says no. And guess what else? This whole religious machine, Jesus says, this temple, this religious institution, it's getting in the way of the very things God cares for most. And so it's all coming down. God is done with it. Mark 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This is God's judgment. It's Jesus' judgment on this whole form of religion which is based on power and prestige and wealth, which is about comfort and respectability. And, and so it can't make room for Jesus or for his priorities. It can't fit him into what it's about because he's concerned about the last and the lost and the least. People like the poor widow. And he sides with with such ones. And he says the goal is losing it all and giving it all in in love for people like that. And so Jesus says this temple and all it represents is going down under God's judgment. And it's in that context that Jesus gives the famous Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple and about his second coming. Jesus gives these prophecies in response to his disciples asking him to elaborate about when and how the temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus tells them and Jesus warns them and and talks about his coming again. And it's at the end of that discourse that we have today's passage. So, uh, when Jesus warns in today's passage, um, in light of my coming, in, in light of God's judgment, if you want to follow me and follow my path, then you have to stay awake, we gain a better idea of what he means when he says stay awake. So how do we stay awake? Do you see from the context? It it means that we embrace the way of the cross. Jesus' upside-down kingdom. It means we swim upstream in, in a world seeking to climb the ladder of success and prestige and power. It means we go against the grain. It means we go against the flow Even the flow of religion, when religion does not reflect Jesus' teaching and priorities. When the flow around us is towards what's best for us, for our comfort, for our security, for our benefit and advantage, for our enrichment and influence, to the extent that we go along with this, 
we're falling asleep. To be awake, to be alert, means we follow Jesus by putting others before ourselves. We seek to benefit others more than ourselves, especially the lost, the last, and the least. We choose weakness. We choose self-sacrifice, which is to say we choose love. And, and we don't get lulled if we're awake into judging as the world judges. We don't get lulled into their version of success. We, we, we rather, we, we keep Jesus' view in view, Jesus' way, the way of the cross. Where winning is found in losing, and gaining is found in giving up, and the least are the greatest, and the last are the first, and the top dogs are the servants of all. That's what it means to stay awake. That's our duty. That's the responsibility Jesus has given us to live this way, to conduct our lives and our churches this way, to treat people and to view people this way. And that's what Jesus expects to find us doing when he gets back. Let me close with a story. It's, it's a parable told among Iraqi Jews. Once long ago in a kingdom far away, there was a most unusual custom. Because in most customs, when a king dies, his son or daughter succeeds to the throne after. But not in this kingdom. In this kingdom, when a king died, a special bird called the bird of good fortune was released. And this bird flew around and around, and the person upon whose head it finally landed became the next king. Strange custom, right? Well, in this kingdom, there was once a slave who lived and worked in the king's palace. And the slave was a musician who entertained the king and his court. He dressed in funny clothes, including a cap made of chicken feathers, a belt made of the hooves of sheep, and he played music on a drum for the amusement of the royalty. It came to pass one day, though, that the king died and the bird of fortune was released. It circled the sky for some time while the people of the kingdom um, watched in anticipation. And finally, it came to the rest in the chicken feathers on the head of the slave in the king's court. Immediately, in his, to his surprise, this slave was, was declared king of the entire kingdom, and in an instant, he was transformed into a powerful sovereign. The slave moved into the, court, the quarters of the, the king. He donned the royal attire. He sat upon his throne. And as his first royal decree, he had a little hut built next to the palace, and there he kept his chicken feather hat and his belt of hooves and his drum, the vestiges of his life as a slave. The only other furnishing in the entire shack was a large mirror. And every day the new king would visit that little hut, disappearing behind the door for a short time. Then he would emerge, lock the door behind him. And his ministers and, and uh, advisors thought this was a very peculiar custom. After all, he was the king now, but who would question the king? Well, as the years went on, the new king passed many laws aimed at reducing slavery and suffering. The changes were made gradually, so gradually that no one noticed. The king was known, to be, uh, was known to all for his kindness, for his compassion, as well as his peculiar habit of visiting that little hut once a day. Well, one day his closest advisor got up the courage and asked, Your Majesty, what is it that you keep in that hut of yours? My most treasured possessions, the king replied. And he led the advisor to the hut and showed them his 
or the advisor his chicken feather hat, his belt, and his drum. But these are the things of a slave, the advisor replied in disgust. These are not the possessions of a king, your majesty. Ah, but they are, replied the king. You see, once I was a slave and now I am free. When you made me your king, I promised myself and God that I would never forget that I was once a slave, lest I grow arrogant and haughty and treat people as I was once treated. So every morning I come here and I dress as I was once forced to dress as a slave. I stare at myself in the mirror until tears come to my eyes. And only then am I prepared to leave this hut and to rule as a good king should. It's this memory which makes me the king that I am. And so these are my most treasured possessions. This man, this slave turned king, he knew how to stay awake. Do you? Do I? Do you remember the cross? Do you remember what kind of king we serve? Do you remember what it means to follow him? Do you remember the kind of upside-down kingdom that he came to bring? Do you realize that he's coming back? Are you ready to welcome him? Awake and alert. How do you not get lulled into falling asleep and going with the flow of the world around you? How do you stay awake? Are there, there are ways God is trying to wake you up, but you're not listening. You're hitting the snooze button. You know, last week we considered sedatives and sleeping pills that keep us asleep or make us drowsy. This week I was trying to think, what, what's a symbol for staying awake? And I thought, coffee, right? So, coffee beans. So, as, as you take a minute to reflect, what is it that you need to keep you awake? What is it that God's asking you to do to stay awake? Um, as Rachel and the team come to lead us in the closing song, I want to invite you to think about that and think if there's something that God's asking you to do. And then if you're willing to do that thing, to commit to that thing, to stay awake, I want to invite you to come as a reminder and take a reminder, take a coffee bean to represent that thing as a prayer and as a commitment. Um, and maybe at coffee you invite someone to ask you what that bean represents for you and what their bean represents for them. Let's worship.